This podcast contains explicit material. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back to season six of The Joy of Text, a monthly podcast about Judaism and sexuality. Coming up on this episode, we'll discuss sex education with younger children. I feel like the most important thing about sex education for parents, especially with little kids, is to start becoming comfortable themselves. If you are lucky enough to be addressing this when your kids are really little, you are lucky enough to say, okay, I'm going to get past the hump of feeling uncomfortable with this. Then we'll have a conversation about a book I recently published along with some amazing collaborators called Monologues from the Muckle. The energy in the room was so powerful and so palpable that, you know, it kind of became clear like, oh, this is a real need. And finally, the final word. That's all coming up after this quick word from our sponsor. At Mays Health, we know that if you're having sexual problems, it can have a significant impact on your life and on your relationship. We also know that these problems are not all in your head, and it's important for you to know that pain, low libido, erection, or orgasm problems can all be successfully resolved. Maze is the only treatment center of its kind in the area, addressing both the physical and emotional sources of sexual difficulties. If you're a man or a woman experiencing sexual problems, please don't go another day feeling like there is no solution. Visit us at www.mazehealth.com. to season six of the joy of text yay we're so excited to be back i am your moderator sarah rosner lawrence and i'm here as usual with dr bacheva marcus clinical director of maze women's health and rabbi dove linzer rosh yeshiva and president of yeshiva chalavei torah god i missed you guys <laughs> it's been a long time yeah absolutely and i can't believe we're already on season six so crazy i feel like that's a big number So our topic for today is sex education with younger children, like let's say before bar or bat mitzvah age. So we decided that there was just so, so much to talk about when it comes to sex education that we really need to split this topic up into two smaller episodes. So this episode, we're going to be talking about sex ed with younger kids. This is part one. And then you can stay tuned for part two in the future when we'll discuss sex education with teens and young adults. So... Sex education with younger kids. So I feel like the number one question with this topic that I actually have heard people ask me, people, I feel like like this is just everyone's like top question is when should you start speaking to your kids about sex, right? How young is too young or how old is too old? I love this question. My favorite question. And there's no such thing as too young. And I think that comes from people understanding that when you, the moment you start holding and touching and kissing your baby, you are teaching them about sex. Like that is the most critical thing. Like to understand that teaching a child about sex is teaching them about their body, feeling comfortable with their body, understanding that loving touch can be really amazing. As they get older, using the correct body parts and names for body parts talking about sex super comfortably when they're really young, when it's not uncomfortable. And then it develops as time goes on and getting books for kids, even at age two or three about like body parts and taking care of their bodies and already at five or six, understand kind of a little bit where babies come from. So, you know, people are often shocked when I say start really young, but there are so many reasons to start young. The younger you start, the better. Could I just ask a question, though, about the use of the term sex education in all of those areas? Because 
Like when you talk about hugging and kissing out of affection for your child, to me, that's not sex or that's something to be distinguished from sexual touch or body parts, uh, even though they're sexual organs, they're, you know, they have other functions as well. I'm wondering like why that's all put under the, the, the heading of sex education. Because sex education starts with a really good sort of sense of your own body and sexuality. Like that is just, it's a basis for being able to have good sex. And so understanding your body, being comfortable with your body, being able to talk about your body, picking up the fact that those are things are not shameful, um, that touch is an important part of all this. That is, that is sort of the building blocks, the underlying building blocks for sex education. And I think another super important point is that um, at this very young age, often kids are getting talks about like stranger danger and about like who who is it appropriate to, you know, reveal your body in front of, who's allowed to touch your body. So all of these things which are really age appropriate for very young kids are like really the fundamentals of like consent and body autonomy, uh, which is like not usually how we think about it. But um, I think that's also like a like a real fundamental of of sex ed. I'm really glad you raised that, Sarah, because I think it's the most understandable to people. You want to teach consent when they're older as the consent that we think of as consent. But already when you have a three-year-old and you insist that that three-year-old kisses Uncle Harry, you're sort of giving a message you may not want to be giving. You know, one of my favorite sex educators always says that from the day her children are born, basically, they have a choice. It's like wave, hug, or kiss or something, or shake hands, wave, or kiss. Like, and every time they meet somebody, they get to choose how they interact with that person. And that is, she believes, the bottom line of consent in the end. And I think that she's right. And so it's the same kind of thing. If they grow up feeling comfortable saying vagina and penis and vulva, and they know their body parts, they don't feel shame with them, that is going to be one of the building blocks that helps them have a good, healthy sex life. It's very hard to kind of go back at age, you know, 15 or 18 or 21 and say, well, you shouldn't have shame about those things because they're not shameful when you've been treating them as shameful since the day they were born. Totally. I think another really important thing, sorry, guys, I'm really passionate about this topic. Um, I think another really important point when kids are very young is like the first time you see your kid touching their own private parts, right? And like how that's like such an opportunity for parents to really address that in like an open, affirming, healthy way. I'll pose it as a question for Batsheva. Like if you're a parent, your three-year-old daughter is touching her vulva, how do you handle that conversation? So that's such a common question, right? Because your kids are going to masturbate. Assuming that you have raised them not to be ashamed of their body, they're going to try to touch their body because it's going to feel good to them. And the way you respond is completely setting the stage for how they're going to react to their bodies. And even if you just sort of purse your lips and take a big deep, oh my God, and then don't say anything, that's a message that's getting across to your children. It's almost like messages are given even if you're not talking and you need to be aware of that. So it's absolutely essential that you are super comfortable with this, which honestly, I almost feel like we jumped the gun because I feel like the most important thing about sex education for parents, especially with little kids, 
is to start becoming comfortable themselves. If you are lucky enough to be addressing this when your kids are really little, you are lucky enough to say, okay, I'm going to get past the hump of feeling uncomfortable with this. <laughs> and you need to really be honest with yourself because I cannot tell you how often I see parents groups and they, I say, well, how many of you are comfortable talking about sex? And everybody raises their hand. And then I say, well, how many of you actually talked about sex with your kids? And none of them raised their hand or five of them raised their hand. And I'm like, well, why not? And they say, well, the kids didn't ask. And the kids are not going to ask. You need to start this conversation and you need to be really comfortable. And it's much easier when your child is two or three or four or five or six to have these conversations and use the words that are appropriate and not stumble over them or stumble over them, but then get past it. It's much easier to do that when your kids are little than when they are older. So um, I am a huge believer in like starting to talk about these things. Now, Dove... I know people ask, like, maybe it's not Sanua to do that. And it feels to me like that is, seems like such a red herring to me, but I turn it over to you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I think that when we talk about Sneos, we can often mean a couple of things. Like often the conversation is about, you know, how many part of your body you have to cover, which we've discussed before, which is not what this is about. You know, I think Sneos talked about more in terms of a general value we often mean about not calling attention to yourself, recognizing that there are other people in the world, not always putting yourself forward. I think here when people are using the word uh, tsanua, what they actually mean is that these relate to things that are intimate and private and are not supposed to be spoken about in a public space. Well, I mean, I guess it depends on two scenarios, right? One is you go ahead and you talk to your kid and then they go ahead and uh, they share in school all of the body parts or something, you know, and then that's like not Sanua. We don't talk about these things in public. We talk about them in private. Um, and I actually am interested in asking you about how do you message your kids the difference between intimacy and privacy as opposed to, but it's not shameful. Like to me, that seems like a hard, sometimes balance. How do they get that message? So I think that that's probably what some people mean. And I have to tell you, like, that's actually something, you know, that resonates with me. I think that, you know, we can talk about these things to our kids, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we want this to be part of a public conversation. There are things that are talked about in a certain context, right? We're doing this in an educational context. I mean, when you say, when you're in public, you don't say, I have to go urinate. You have to say, I have to go to the bathroom, right? So there's ways in which things are spoken about in public and there are things, you know, and depends on context and when is it appropriate to be explicit and when is it less appropriate? That's actually something that I don't know how the two of you feel. I actually do believe in. Um, but I think that probably what you're also hearing about Sheva or when people say it's not Sanua means even if it's just you and your two-year-old, you know, to be directly speaking about parts of the body is not Sneas because that's too, I don't know, it's, it's a sexual content and we shouldn't be talking about things sexual. And I don't really know that there's any place for that in terms of the concept of Tsniu. To me, that's just a way of saying, I feel uncomfortable. It relates to the world of sex. We don't talk about them in any context. And I don't think that that's correct at all. I think that the Gemara, when it needs to talk about, you know, sex gets extremely uh, graphic and specific, you know, and there are times when it's, you know, that it has concerns about sexual provocation and so on, but there's not an idea that you don't talk about them in the right context. Actually, you're supposed to talk about them in the right context. I'm glad you said that because I do often feel like when people say they feel like something's not so new, it's that they're really uncomfortable with it. And so I feel like a really important message here for the parents listening is to do a little like like really look internally and see, is this something you're uncomfortable with? And that's okay because so many of us grew up with shame around sex, but 
you will be doing your child a major, major favor if you start practicing. And I mean practicing, like talk to your spouse, talk to your pillow, talk to your mirror, talk in the shower, say the words vulva, vagina, masturbate, clitoris, penis. Use the terminology that you want to use and, and have these conversations out loud in some context because then you can have them with your child in a way that won't be shameful to your child. And I think that as you get older and you're talking to your children, it's very important for you to have your values set up so that you can then articulate them to your kids. And you may say this activity, you may be talking to your eight or nine year old about sexual intercourse, and you may be saying, this is a really special activity and it's wonderful. And you know, married people do that if that is what you wanna say. Um, you can say, this is something that makes other people often uncomfortable to talk about. I, I don't necessarily know why that is, but it's not something that we generally talk about in public, but it's something that we're very comfortable talking about and you should be able to ask all your questions. I think that's a way that a kid picks up that it's not shameful, but it also may not be the thing they want to stand up and yell in the auditorium. Mm -hmm. So first of all, I mean, the values issue, I want to just acknowledge that sometimes parents will be very conflicted because if they're being honest with themselves in terms of where their values are, they're not necessarily the same in terms of what, you know, halacha is saying or what they believe halacha is saying, or what they believe Orthodox Judaism is saying. And sometimes what they'll default to is the party line rather than their own values and sometimes even express the party line without really believing it or, you know, even in maybe more black and white ways than it actually could be presented. So I think that's a really important question, like how to not only acknowledge what you're get in touch with your values um, and your discomfort, but also when they're not consistent with your perception of halacha or orthodoxy. And, you know, how do you think that through before talking to your kids about them? I feel like that issue is so important and so critical. And I think that is really what stands behind a lot of the silence around sex, like both coming from parents and also coming from, from like school systems and educators, right? Like so often there's like this sense of, okay, there, there may be some conflict in values or some, you know, like uncertainty in how to navigate the set of values here while still providing, you know, clear information. And so the response is to just back away. And I also feel like this conversation is really going to come into play a lot for our part two of this episode, you know, about talking to your teens and to young adults when those decisions might be much more imminent and present and live. Like for a 10-year-old, most 10-year-olds are probably not, you know, like seriously contemplating having sex anytime soon. So I feel like it's almost easier to kind of navigate at a younger age. It's true on the one hand, Sarah, that it is much easier. And we will delve into that, I think, deeper in the next episode. But I just want to say to you that there are certain issues that are going to come up when you're, the kids are still already young. Like, for example, do you want to say to them, this is something that only mommies and daddies do? That's very heteronormative, right? Or do you want to say, um, this is not something only married couples do because that is really your value that only married couples do? Um, and as in parentheses, I want to say what happens in a lot of cases is that parents, they're sort of stuck because their head says, well, I don't want my kid to do this until they're in a committed relationship. But I was having sex when I was 17. But I think that when the kids are little is a really good opportunity for partners to be talking to each other and sort of figuring out how they want to address these issues. We can't tell you how you should address these issues. We can only say to you, you need to address them. And the more head on you address them, the better. And the clearer you really and truly are about your values, 
the better message you're going to give to your children. And you're the only one who can pass those values on to your kids. And it's going to get passed on in subtle ways, right? Like if you say something about mommies and daddies and that's all all you say and you don't say something about people being married, that's going to give one message. And another message if you say that sometimes there's two mommies. So you really do need to kind of define for yourself what that situation is, the way you want to raise your children, the the voice that you want your kids to hear, and then model it as much as you can. And and I do want to say that you can be transparent about, I mean, it's a choice to make, but to be transparent about areas of conflict, you could say like, look, you know, I actually believe that it's, uh, I'm not saying me personally, but somebody could say, you know, I actually believe that it's a beautiful way of connecting and it doesn't require, you know, being in a marital uh, relationship, but we are Orthodox Jews, you know, as part of that, we are committed to the idea that sex takes place in marriage, you know, or maybe even areas of greater conflict, but to acknowledge, like, here's my values, but one of my values is to be, live up to what it means to the communal halachic norms of being Orthodox Jew. And I think you could, you could articulate that. Right. But I think if I was a parent who wanted my kids to actually listen to me, I would say that. And I would say, but I am well aware that in a lot of cases, a lot of Orthodox people are having sex before they're married. And that doesn't mean that they don't then can go on to have a religious life and decide to keep the halachot of mikvah. And in other words, I think if you're going to give those values, giving the information that not everybody sticks to those values is only helpful. And I know parents are scared of that because they feel like that's opening a door. But I'm going to tell you what it uh, opens the door to is your kid feeling like you're realistic and they can talk to you about things. And that's the door you want open. Yeah. And I feel like that conversation also becomes more and more uh, important and nuanced and live as kids are getting older and as kids are like starting to develop their own information sources and opinions about sex that are not only coming from the parent anymore, right? And that might be what we're going to touch upon more in in the next episode. Right. I do think parents often freak out when they see kids playing with each other. That I have to say is like when they see they come in and the the little boy and the little girl are playing doctor with each other. And I just want to normalize for parents how common that is because they're curious about their bodies and how you react is so much more important than the actual act that they've done. And if you come in and you're like, oh my God, get your clothes on right away. How could you be doing that? Like all of a sudden something that they were doing quite innocently becomes something evil and bad and shameful. And I cannot tell you how many people remember years and years later when their parents caught them either masturbating themselves or exploring with other kids and the amount of shame that is heaped on them. And if the parent just says, oh, hi, you know, we don't really like to do that. Johnny, can you please put your clothes on? Um, And tikva, you know, the underpants really do belong on you. And we don't get undressed with each other. That's a private thing we do at home. That is a totally, totally different response. And one I highly recommend and do not say, oh my God, what did I do as a parent that my kid my was my kid sexually abused because my kid is like testing, you know, playing around with other kids. It's so normal. So I, I, I just, I needed to throw that out there. So that does go back to the shame issue and striking that balance between intimacy and shame. Like if let's take the masturbation example, if you see a kid touching the you know genitals and you answer, you respond in one way, obviously that keeps shame on the kid. But let's say you say, you know, this is something that we do in private. We don't do in front of other people. We don't do in public. Is Do you think that when even giving that message can sometimes like how exactly to draw the line between that and it being something shameful if it's something that you have to only do in private? I feel like it's an important message though. Like they have to also realize that 
it's not in fact appropriate to start masturbating in the middle of dinner. Like that actually is not going to be socially acceptable in your own home. If they have guests over, like that's just fine for kids to to learn and to take in. And I feel like Vasheva could probably speak to this a lot more professionally, but like my sense is that that message could be delivered in a way like if coming from the parent like really deep down, they are not feeling any like negativity or any upset or any like sense of inner shame or like freaking out about it. Like they can deliver that message with like a very clear sense of what you're doing is fine and is positive. And also we don't do it in public. And those are both really necessary. I think that's perfect though you said it, Sarah. I think that's totally perfect. I think there's a lot of places where... Our kids don't pee in public either, right? They go to the bathroom to, to to pee or to, you know, shower. Nobody showers in public, right? That's not showering isn't a bad thing. Right. And there's also an age at which kids have to learn you can't run around naked in public, right? Like every two year old probably like takes their clothes off at home and then one day it's like we have guests over at the Shabbos table. You know, you, you like you just can't take your clothes off anymore. And that's okay. Like Everyone has to learn that. Mm -hmm. And to circle back, how do you feel about talking about these issues in public? The point I made before, which I I got a vibe that maybe uh, you were not in full agreement. Like, you know, I don't think in the middle of the supermarket, you start talking about the body parts. And I don't think that the kid gets up in class and lectures the whole class about how babies are made. I don't think it's appropriate for, you know, a seven-year-old to be be standing up and telling the whole class. I do at least believe that there's a difference between types of discourse that are private and types of discourse that are public. And uh, yeah, I'm just curious how you, how the two of you think about that. So I do think that as kids get older, you can make that distinction clear, clearer and without shame. But I think when you have little kids and you're teaching them body parts, you just have to run the risk. And I don't think it's so bad, personally. If your kid's in the supermarket and he starts, or your daughter is like, oh my God, Ema, my vulva itches because she's standing there. And yeah, you might get some looks and you're like, okay, sweetie, we'll take care of it when we get home. You know what? Like if you're going to save that child from years of shame because you didn't like go, Shh, oh my God, don't say that. And that's a matter of getting past your own embarrassment. Then I feel like it's worth the trade-off. I think we've probably all been in the situation. I know that I have been where I've been. I think I was a bed bath beyond once and the guy and the kid's like, My penis, my penis, I have to pee, I have to pee. And I just started cracking up. And like so a couple of people started laughing, but nobody was really judgmental. And honestly, I was really sort of happy that I didn't hear like my wee, 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 wee. There's a little bit of a risk that your kids may say words that you may feel a little uncomfortable with. And I'm going to say, get past it. It's not that big a deal. And honestly, if your child is giving other kids accurate sex education in the playground, again, I would tell kids, I don't know that you want to talk about this a lot because some people are weird about it, but I'd rather my kid give other kid accurate information than not be part of a conversation where massive, massive amounts of inaccurate information is being passed around. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. I was just going to add to that, that whatever, like you think you're scared of your kid saying on the playground, guaranteed there is a kid saying something even more like ridiculous or outrageous or inaccurate or like turning sex into something like to taunt kids about. Like I think also at like maybe in like already by like second or third grade, like kids who learned about sex 
from their older siblings or like from a TV show or whatever have already picked up on the fact that sex is something like kind of dirty, kind of bad, kind of shameful. And like, I'm going to use it to like bully another kid or like, I'm going to use it to like do the classic, like say X three times, like, and then we're going to laugh at you. Right. So like these things are already being used and like turned into like ammunition by kids from a very young age. So it's like, why would you not want to give your kid the security and the knowledge to like know what they're talking about already and already have a positive association with it as opposed to getting their first exposure to those concepts through this negative, shameful, you know, association. Mm -hmm. So could we talk about like explicit labeling, which, you know, I don't have a problem with in a way it's almost desexualizing, you know, because it's, it can almost be like medical terms you know, that we can all think of a lot of street terms that can be used for things which are highly sexualizing. The Gemara certainly often avoids explicit labeling of things. You know, it speaks about, for example, the act of sex is called Tashmi Shamita, which is using the bed. So it occurs to me, you know, but also we often say, you know, sleeping with somebody rather than having sex with someone. So I think that sometimes we don't feel like we want to, you know, be as blatant and explicit. But anyway, but the Gemara is pretty consistently using those. You know, for the woman, it speaks about makom or makor. For the man, it says aver, which is like the limb. It would be very reasonable. I mean, maybe this is a question you want to be asking me, but I'll start by putting it out to you. You know, very reasonable for somebody to say that, you know, clearly our tradition does not favor explicit labeling of uh, bodily parts, you know, certainly of sexual organs. So I feel like this is a cultural issue. I feel like you need to have your child prepared to work in a world where they will be growing up. And this, that is not a world where people are saying the place or, um, you know, the thing. We're doing the thing, <laughs> you know. Right. Maybe in those days, that's, that is actually the language people used. But right now, parents' responsibility is to raise their child to be people who can own their sexuality. And the way to do that is to use medical terminology that we are lucky enough to have today, like real live terminology. Again, I'm not suggesting that people use street language for penis. You know, believe me, there's a lot of words for penis, but I'm not suggesting you need to teach those to your child. Although if your child is comfortable with you, they may come home and say, what does this mean, mom? What does this mean? And you can say to them that those are words for penis. So I would argue with you that penis is the better word to use mm -hmm, rather mm -hmm, than those street mm -hmm. language words. And that but saying, you know, the thing that's down there, or I'm trying to think of what Haredim sometimes have their, they tell their sons not to hold it when they're urinating. They say, don't hold your air. Right, your limb. Yeah, your yeah. limb. Like, to my mind, there's no question at this point. There's no question that the right way to go here, you want to prepare your child for an ability to discuss sex, think about sex, talk to other people about sex, and feel confident in their sexuality. You need to give them the right terms. Yeah, I feel similarly. Um, I would say that, you know, I think that this gets also to the difference between sort of uh, shame and privacy. I think that in the Gemara, those terms are used because of feeling that, you know, it preserves the privacy of this. These are having, these are your body parts that you use in a private context. So we're sort of preserving that. And I think the example you gave, like in a Haredi context, don't touch your Aver or whatever, clearly the use of a euphemism nowadays 
is not, you know, it's not just saying sleeping with instead of having sex with. It's communicating this is a shameful thing. And that is, you know, highly corrosive. So I think we have to acknowledge that whatever the context, not just if in the Gemara that was the standard term, maybe it was a term chosen for a more saying this is a private type of a matter. But today, that comes so loaded with the sense of we're not labeling it because it's shameful. I certainly agree with that. You know, Rambam says that the reason Hebrew is called the holy language is because there's no explicit term for the sexual organs in Hebrew. And Ramban, Nachmanides, or not him, but the author of the Igeret HaKodesh, the holy epistle, the holy letter, which is about sex, and it's written from the school of, of Ramban, of Nachmanides, you know, he says Rambam was so taken with this idea of shame associated with the sensual and the physical, and he says it's a totally non-Jewish, uh, it's, you know, he says it's a, like a Greek idea, it's a not a Jewish idea, and he says every part of your body is created by God. You could use your hands for doing something that's a mitzvah, and you could use your hands for doing a major sin. You know, and the same is true about your sexual organs, and we should never be associating any sense of shame with them. And I think that that's really the key, like to acknowledge that the euphemisms in the Gemara were not to associate shame, and that's what happens nowadays when we when we go that route. Couldn't agree more. So, by the way, one other thing that I know here people say is like, I want to keep my kid as pure as possible. All I'm going to tell you is that every piece of data shows the more you tell your kids, the less, the more likely they are to start later to not get into any kinds of sexual mishaps. I think Rabbi Linzer is talking more about the like mentally pure, you know, like my five-year-old shouldn't know anything. Right. I am. Well, why shouldn't your, why should your five-year-old not know? You don't want your five-year-old to know because you're afraid they're going to start thinking about something or doing something. That's why people don't want people to know. No, I think that there's, I don't know. I also think it's almost like, like, I don't know. I don't know if I want to say metaphysical or something like symbolic, like my child is pure. It's not, it's not rational. It's not practical. Right. That's like, as you so eloquently said on behalf of the Ramban, like that's only if you view sex as something impure, which is not really a Jewish value. Right. So I, I think we probably have to wrap up, but I, I do want to say that one of the things we didn't touch on is something very practical. Like, how do you do this? You know, Bacheva, you're saying I should start talking to my kids when I'm young. And so a big piece of this is talking to your partner, if you have one, about what your values are and what are the messages you want to communicate. The second piece of that is practicing and starting as little as you can with the kids. And then the third thing is you want to use every available opportunity to kind of bring this up as what I'll call micro conversation. I like to use the analogy of um, of nutrition. Like you wouldn't sit your child down when they were 12 and say, now I'm going to teach you about nutrition. You have to have these macronutrients and these micronutrients. You wouldn't do that. That would... Every day of their life, you are making meals with them, talking to them about vegetables, taking them to the supermarket, talking about how delicious the ice cream tastes, right? You are giving them all kinds of values and messages constantly by your behavior every day. And I would say you should be doing the same about sex. And that is through television shows that they're watching, keeping books in the house that the kids can pick up. I have, if anybody wants, I have a resource of books for parents and books for kids. I have it on Instagram under Dr. Bacheva under the highlights. Keep books around the house. Read them to your kids when they're really young. That's the, from my mind, that's the easiest way to get started. When you're learning Tanakh, I always feel like that is an amazing time to talk about sex um, because that's where prostitutes show up and, you know, what does that mean to have sex and how do they have a baby? And never, never worry about giving them too much information because if they don't get it, it'll just go right over their head. But when they need that information, it will come back to them. And 
at least you know that you have armed your kid with correct information because believe me, by 11 on the playground, they're getting, as Sarah was saying, massive amounts of misinformation. So you want them to go in fully armed. And I feel like those are the most important messages. If you get nothing else from this podcast tonight, those are the messages. Prepare yourself, make yourself feel comfortable. You be the instigator. Talk about it as much as you can in small, tiny tidbits and practice. Mm -hmm. That's great. Absolutely. Thank you so much, guys. Next up, we'll have a conversation about my book, Monologues from the Muckle. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. With over 125 musmachim in the field, Yeshivat Chovavet Torah is committed to training a new generation of modern Orthodox rabbis. Jason, you're a rabbi in training. What's your perspective? It was precisely the musmachim of Yeshivat Chovavet Torah that drew me to the yeshiva. The tremendous diversity of work that they're engaged in and the underlying love of and commitment to the Jewish people really inspires me. Thanks, Jason. If you'd like to apply or schedule a visit, go to yctorah.org. So we have a very special guest on this episode. Um, Our very own Sarah Rosner Lawrence is going to be our guest because Sarah has a book that is coming out or has come out actually called Monologues from the Makom. And it's amazing. We're going to talk to you about this book. We're very, very excited. And especially because Sarah of the three of us is the first one to come out with a book, which is <laughs> unbelievable. And uh, well Sarah, we are so happy and proud of you and so excited to have you as a guest this time on The Joy of Text. Thank you so much. I'm really excited to be here in this capacity. <laughs> It was a big get to be able to have you on our show. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, very, we're very proud. We are very proud. We're shepping Nachas. Totally, Thank totally. You. Um, and every listener who's listening needs to order this book, The Monologue for the Malcolm. Okay, so Sarah, give us a little bit in terms of the history of like how this project came about, because it's a super interesting project, which I was lucky enough to sort of see from the inside early on. So tell us what happened. Totally. So just like a little bit of uh, like basic background about the book. So the book is a collection of women's personal narratives about sexuality, gender, body image, and Jewish identity and how those things intertwine. So there are poems, there are like short, you know, like essays in, in the book. And we just published it on September 1st. Very exciting. So this whole book really started off um, in May of 2016 as just like a one-off event, actually, uh, that I planned along with a couple of my friends from college. Um, I was a senior at Stern College for Women, and I had just always, you know, felt like there wasn't enough space and, you know like a real platform for Jewish women to really share their experiences when it came to like sex and sexuality and even things like gender roles in the Orthodox community and ways that that might, you know, be challenging or difficult. So I came up with this idea, like, let's do an event. Um, It was sort of modeled after the play, The Vagina Monologues by Eve Ensler. which I had seen as a sophomore in college, I think. Um, so that was kind of like the inspiration for this. And honestly, it just was a like kind of casual idea um, that I just like enacted with some friends from college, like someone we knew had a 
big apartment in Washington Heights. I bought some snacks from Trader Joe's. Um, and the real like special thing about that first event was that so, so, so many people asked if they could share something at the event. I think we had like 17 or 18 women Mm. sign up to share their own personal narratives, which was like shocking and incredible to me because, you know, I had thought, oh, like maybe 10 people are going to show up to this thing. But, you know, in the end, it turned out like 75 plus people like crammed into this living room, like 17 women shared their stories and like just the the energy in the room was so powerful and so palpable that you know it kind of became clear like oh this is a real need like this is something that needs to keep happening so from there uh we were really lucky to have like a little bit of news coverage um you know in like the Jewish week or or something like that um and from there i think Batsheva, you saw the the article, I think, and you like commented on Facebook. Oh my gosh, we have to get this like to be at the at the 2017 Jofa conference. So I, of course, was like starstruck because I don't mm. think I had met you at that point, and was like, "Wow, you know, I'm so excited that this is going to be featured at the Jofa conference." It was so perfect. So it was the Saturday night activity at the conference. I remember I walked in late because I had to go to another session. I walked in, I sort of slid in in the back, and I was so moved. I mean, I was so moved. I maybe heard five or six. Yeah. So it was a really, really special thing, and like just in, like a totally unbelievable platform. I think because you know like friends in someone's living room, right? Like reaches a certain number of people, but then being at the Jofa conference as the, you know, Saturday night activity reaches a whole new level of, um, of just people and participants uh, and different age women. I can't tell you how many women who are my age were like so moved by this. They ne- we never had any environments to talk about these things. So it was really profound. Totally. Yeah. And so from there, we did a third live event. And then like shortly after the Jofa conference, we started talking about turning it into a book. Mm. And it was originally Batsheva's idea. She like elbowed through the the like Saturday night Jofa conference crowd. She was like, I need to find Sarah Rosner. <laughs> and, and she just like shouted towards me in the middle of the lobby like Sarah you need to turn this into a book that was amazing and like honestly I don't think the thought had ever occurred to me before then that like this could really be something bigger and something that might need a more permanent platform than just a one-time event so here we are you know three years later it's a real it's a real live book Beautiful cover, by the way. Who designed the cover? Thank you. Yes, the cover was um, designed by Amalia Sherman. She is a very talented artist who lives in Washington Heights. I also just really want to thank my incredible, incredible co-editors, without whom this would definitely not have happened. Rivka Cohen, Naima Hirsch, Sarah Ricklin, and Rebecca Zimelover. They were totally incredible. They really like stuck through with this project from day one and really like put in the work to really turn this into a book. So I, I just wanted to make sure we, mm. we acknowledge them and gave them all a shout out. Mm-hmm. 
So I want to ask, you know, you said, both you and Batsheva said that uh, there really had never been any space like this. Is there no space for women to get together, women who are, let's say, I don't know, married, let's say maybe not the same, you know, the same section of the of the population, but to talk about what's going on with them, you know, in terms of uh, their sex lives or in terms of sexuality, any of that? Like, do we not create those spaces in the Jewish community? I honestly don't know. I think largely no. You know, like, it's really... Okay, I think there are a lot of platforms where young Jewish women are talked to about dating. Like I've I've, you know, attended dozens of talks, you know, th- throughout my young adulthood about dating this and dating that whatever, but you know, there those events usually are very frontal, like very much like someone coming in and like telling you stuff you should believe and think and consider. Um, And I think also, like dating is just one tiny shred of, you know, a whole lived experience that I think is really like enormously complex. Like I think young Jewish women, and especially young Orthodox women are really grappling with, you know, on the one hand, like all of the sort of weight of halacha, all of the weight of like secular gender norms, all of the weight of religious gender norms, just like becoming a sexual person in 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 a world that is really like pulling you in so many different directions. You know, that's probably an issue that is faced by people of many different faiths. Like I've I've actually like spoken to some to some people in other like more I guess like lowercase C conservative religious communities who said like, oh my gosh, I totally relate to so many of these narratives. Like this is exactly like my experience. So like, like, I don't think it's unique to Judaism, but um, I definitely think that it's a really complex kind of picture that people are trying to navigate through. And as far as I know, there have not really been a lot of spaces for those conversations to happen. Hmm. Also, for me, the ones that were most powerful, we're talking about people felt shame about often, either shame about not knowing things sexually or shame about incidents that happened to them that they couldn't quite articulate what it was at the time. And, you know, if you have a good close friend and you're feeling particularly strong and not vulnerable, maybe you'll share these things, but there's something about being able to take these moments and bring them out and talk about them out loud. I mean, I feel like when I deal with shame with people, like the only answer to shame is to take it out of the darkness and talk about it. And all of a sudden it doesn't feel shameful anymore. And like the truth is the men could use it also. Like this idea of talking about those moments in your past or even allowing yourself to think about them when you just felt overwhelmed with either shame or ignorance or confusion and being able to talk about that in a supportive group. And then to realize how universal those feelings are because other people are hearing you and they're like, oh my God, you just put into words Mm -hmm, exactly how mm -hmm, I feel. mm -hmm. And so there's something so empowering about that. Sorry, I didn't mean to go on and on, Sarah. No, not at all. I feel like you you just really, like I, I wrote a lot about, you know, my experience navigating that kind of shame and in the introduction to the book. And I think like, I totally resonate with everything you just said. Like, I think I really created this project. So like just as much to, you know, fill a need that I personally had, like just as much as for like other people, you know, and I definitely think that shame 
really underlies a lot of what is driving people to want to write and is really, you know, a driving force behind this project, like trying to like look shame in the face, say like shame is here. We all have really complicated experiences and the only way to deal with that and the only way to make it better is to actually talk about it and to like shine light onto the issue. I think it also really like relates to our earlier conversation about sex education with kids, because I think like one of the biggest sources of shame is really silence, right? Like when, when something just isn't talked about at all, when you know it exists, like you know it's out there, but all of the people who you look to in, in your life to like give you answers and explain like how life works. All of those adult figures are just like shockingly silent about this major, major topic. And so like, what is a young child to like take away from that, right? Like the, obviously if people aren't talking about it, it must be because it's really bad, right? Like it must be because there's something really shameful about it. So I think like when you think about it that way, that like shame is really bred in silence like the best way to address that is to have a project like this that that really like gives a voice and shines a light and creates a conversation. Hmm. So is there thinking about having this fuel a lot an ongoing project whether it's encouraging people to have groups like this or creating an online opportunity for people to share like where does it go from here? Yeah, so we're definitely talking about doing more live events in the future, especially now in the age of Zoom. I think we've all sort of um, become accustomed to the idea that the events we run can have a much wider reach. Um, But I guess like first and foremost, um, we're really hoping that like the book as it exists right now will be a tool to really reach a much wider audience and to kind of be a conversation starter for other people. Like I don't necessarily need me and my fellow editors to be like organizing and moderating and whatever, every single conversation that happens about, about this, obviously like that's not the goal. The goal is really like this book should be on people's coffee tables and like, hopefully it can spark, you know, more open and more productive conversations with people all over. So did you get any pushback on this project? Have you had any negatives on this project? Because it's pretty bold. Interestingly, not so much. I think um, I was terrified. I was really, really terrified when I first like started this project. Like I was in Stern College. I felt very much like someone is going to really hate on this, right? But actually, it hasn't. It hasn't really happened much. I mean. There have been a few internet trolls um, who might be notable for trolling some other beloved institutions, but for the most part, like no one credible and with a you know balanced voice within the community has has really given pushback. And I think like I'm sure this won't be everyone's cup of tea, and like that's okay. You know, I don't I don't need this to be everyone's cup of tea, and like I know that it's edgy, and I know that. It might rub some people the wrong way, but you know, I hope that for for all the people out there who feel a little bit uncomfortable with the idea of this project, like 
maybe um, some of those people will just glance at the book out of curiosity. Maybe they'll open it and just look at a couple of the pieces and maybe, you know, get a little bit of a different perspective on some of these things than than they maybe had before. Hmm. So Sarah, are there any particular, I mean, I'm sure every story is powerful, but are there anyone in particular that really stick with you? Yeah. So, um, so actually kind of along the theme of shame, there was one that really uh, stuck with me. It's called The Girl Who Loved Masturbating slash My Complicated Relationship with Masturbation. And it's an anonymous piece um, by Shaney. So we we don't know her last name. Um, but it's it's all about her experience as a nine-year-old girl. So I think also very apropos for this episode. Um, when she had her first orgasm totally by by accident like she she didn't know like what she was doing or what that feeling was it was just like a pleasant feeling um and she asked her mom about it and her mom um gave her quote a strange look and insinuated that it wasn't something I should ever do again and so that becomes the backdrop for this young girl's like really complicated, conflicted, guilty relationship with masturbating. And like that one really, really spoke to me because it's like such a it's such a powerful object lesson of like how just like the most subtle messaging, like the most like just one little line, one little like strange look, right? And like that, it's so, it's so easy for that to get encoded as something shameful and negative and bad. And like, like no one ever got up and gave this girl like a whole sermon about how bad it was for, for her to masturbate, but she just like took that in anyway. And I think like that to me was a really, really powerful piece and like definitely resonated with me as like, wow, like this is how shame grows. It's such a powerful story. I mean, it is. Yeah, totally. And the book is chock full of other really, really powerful, really like unique and very like diverse stories. Like there are 32 pieces in the book and they really span the the whole gamut, right? Like there are pieces in there about that kind of like shame. There are pieces in there about like gender roles in the Orthodox community. There are pieces about sexual violence. Um, there are pieces about like, like gender identity stuff. Like it really, really spans the whole gamut. They're, they're all young, right? You didn't get any older women. So we, we actually did. We did really? some. Yes, there were, it actually was not not totally diverse. Like it's not like an equal number of older women wrote in, but we do have several and I find those to be very like rich and powerful. And like, it's, it's just so beautiful to get a more like diverse array of women in terms of like life stage and life experience. And there are some people who wrote about like motherhood and like, it's, it's really like, there's a lot in there. Did you put, did you put the ages of the women in there? We didn't. Um, but there was like content in, in each piece that sort of like made it clear. Well, it's amazing. Amazing. We're really, really so happy for you, Sarah. So happy and so proud of you, really. And we hope the book sells amazingly. Thank you so much, guys.
Where do we get it? At Amazon? So yes, you could buy it on Amazon. You could buy it directly through the publisher, which is Ben Yehuda Press. Buy the book. Yeah. Run out and buy the book. Which would really sell many, many copies. Thank you so much. Next up, the final word. After this quick word from our sponsor. Hi, my name is Rabbi Eliezer Lawrence, and I'm a certified Mohel serving the New York metropolitan area. I work with Jewish families and conversion candidates of all identities, affiliations, and orientations, both within the Orthodox community and beyond. With the sense of uncertainty that we face during this pandemic, you need to feel certain that your baby is in safe hands. My practice is built on ethos of the highest standard of safety and sterility, as well as a deep spirituality for both family and guests. I am proud to have been a key advocate in working with community leadership to ensure clear safety guidelines for Brit Mila during the coronavirus. For more information about me or my practice, you can visit my website, familymohel.com, or give me a call at 201-694-1801. In the meantime, enjoy the podcast, stay safe, and b'sha'at tova. So as many of our listeners probably know, we try to close each episode with a final word, which, you know, is always like a thought or a question or a comment from one of our listeners. So the final word for this week, my daughter is 12 years old. She told me today that she thinks she might be gay. We're an Orthodox family living in Israel. I reassured her right away that we love her and she has time to figure this out. But my question is how to proceed moving forward. Should we bring it up? Should we wait for her to bring it up again? Should we try to find her a lesbian role model she can talk to? Is it possible that this is a phase or a quest for attention? Okay, guys. You know, I'm laughing. I I hate when we have a final word, which could be a whole episode in and of itself. So the fact that you started by telling her that you love her is the most important thing. And kola kavod and yashikoach on that. Um, I think I would find a therapist who is gay sensitive, gay friendly, who she could see and talk to so that she has somebody to talk it through with on a regular basis. So you don't feel like you have to bring it up. I think I would say to her, if you want to talk about anything, you can talk about it. You can bring it up once in a while. Um, I think, you know, having gay friends around is always a useful thing because gay people are a big part of the population. And so our lives should include straight people and gay people. I wouldn't call it a phase so much. Ironically, I feel like current social norms are such that there is some level of, there's more fluidity now than I think that there used to be. People think about sex and partners in a way that we didn't necessarily think about them 20 years ago or even maybe even 10 years ago. And so it may be that in the end, she will decide to be with a woman. It may also be that in the end, she'll decide to be with a man. Um, I hate labels. I don't think labels are helpful to anybody, to be honest. And you just don't think about it so much that way and just focus on wanting her to be happy and find somebody who makes her really happy and fulfills her life. I think you really can't go wrong. 
So, but Kev, I'm just curious because I understand the importance of having a therapist, but how would a parent say to their child, well, let me find a therapist for you in response to hearing that they're gay? Isn't that a very negative message? Right. Well, you're not saying that in response to hearing they're gay. You're saying to them, it sounds like this is something you're thinking about a lot. I'm sure there's a lot of things you're thinking about a lot. Would you like me to find you a therapist? Because I think it would be mm-hmm. super helpful for you to have somebody that you can talk to, that you don't worry about what they're going to you know, judge you or think about you. And you can have somebody to really, really talk to. I can't imagine you want to be talking to me about this all the time, although you're welcome to. Um, So would you like us to find you a therapist? Mm -hmm. It's not that different from parents being upset that their kids are dressing differently than they want them to be dressing. Like they're just 12 or 14 or 15. This is a moment in their life. You know what? You want to be supportive and loving and, you know, you want to set certain boundaries for them in life, but you want to just sort of know them to know you're in their camp and you want things, you want them to be happy. Okay. Thank you guys so much. This episode of The Joy of Text was produced and edited by Max Hollander and is a project of the Lindenbaum Center at YCT. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to share with us, you can do so anonymously at www.thejoyoftext.org. The Joy of Text is available on iTunes, SoundCloud, or any podcast app. If you like what you hear, show us your support by giving us a five-star rating and stay up to date with our latest episodes and live events by following us on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. Shana Tova, everyone.